Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The reading of God's word. We're going to find ourselves in the book of Ephesians. So I invite you to open up in your Bibles. As Scott had mentioned, there's Bibles in the pews, or pews, oh my goodness, the chairs. The chairs in front of you. And so you can open up to Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. We're in the book of Ephesians from now, really, throughout the rest of the year and into to next year. We're studying this glorious book, which is a, just a wonderful proclamation of Christian doctrine and Christian practice. And so we find ourselves in verses 3 through 14 uh, this morning. To begin and to set the context for what we're looking at here in Ephesians today, I want to show you uh, a clip uh, from a football game, and I'll explain why in, in just a moment. Don't do this always, but it helps to illustrate something. Uh, here's the clip. Um, this is uh, Tennessee was playing Alabama just a few weeks ago. This is a kick to ultimately win the game, and they make it. Tennessee beats Alabama for the first time, I believe, in 16 years. Look at them celebrating, but watch the crowd here. I mean, this is the stadium, they're in Tennessee. Somebody pointed out, I did not do this intentionally. I'm wearing the colors of Tennessee right there. Uh, not intentional, but look at how they're responding to what their team has done. They're celebrating. They're going crazy. They're just so excited. It's their way of showing their support for the team. And this goes on and on. In fact, into the night, they continued uh, their celebration. These girls going crazy. They're just, they're just loving that their team had won. Now, is that the first time you've ever seen people celebrate a sports victory like that? No. It happens all the time, doesn't it? Your sports team does something amazing, the crowd goes wild, and everybody cheers. Because what are they doing? They're praising the accomplishment of the sports team. The same thing happens when you go to the theater and you see a wonderful performance. Either it's a play or a musician, the people clap and they cheer. Why? Because they're giving praise to the people for what they have done. Those Tennessee fans were praising their team and they were celebrating in this way. Now, I show that to you because 
Our text this morning is the continuation of something that we saw last week. In Ephesians chapter 1, it begins with these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. The Apostle Paul starts off his letter to the church in Ephesus in making a proclamation. That very first phrase there in in verse 3 is this proclamation. What is that proclamation? Our God is to be praised. He wants us to know that whatever you know or whatever you think of God, he is to be praised. And he says, here's why he's to be praised. Look at what he has done. According to what Paul says here, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. God has done something for you. He has done something for me. And Paul says, if you know it, if you understand it, you should have your heart filled with praise for him. Now, I'm not anticipating that all of a sudden you guys are going to break out and storm up here on the platform and start chanting praise be to God. That happened? Wow, that'd be spectacular. No, but the idea is, is your heart overwhelmed with praise to God? Is your heart filled or has an understanding that every day that you wake up and I wake up, Our God is to be praised. Well, if you don't understand why, Paul says, let me help you out. In verses 3 through 14, he goes through here and he marks out for us, he enumerates the work that God the Father has done, the work that God the Son has done, and the work that God the Holy Spirit has done in order to give us these, what he calls, spiritual blessings. And last week, we looked at the first of the spiritual blessings. And that first spiritual blessing that Paul says has come to us as followers of Jesus Christ is the spiritual blessing that God the Father has chosen you to be a part of his family. Out of all the things that he could start with, he says, do you understand, do you know that God is to be praised because God the Father chose you who were without a family And he brought you into and made you a part of his family. The family-less have been adopted and brought into a family. And Paul says this should cause you to praise him. And I think one of the reasons why this is so transformative is because Jesus once said in John 14, 6, listen to these words. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through who? Me. All right, so you don't get to the Father except through Jesus. But listen to what Jesus says. Work backwards. If you are in the Father because of Jesus, and if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that means you now are on the right way. You now have the truth, whereas before you didn't have it. You now have life, but before, what's the opposite of life, church? It's death. You weren't alive, and now you're alive. If you have been adopted into God's family, if he's chosen you and brought you in, you now have a life that you didn't have before. You didn't have life at all. And this was all the work that God has done for us. You're no longer alone, but you have a father, and you have a family, and it is God's family. This is so precious. This is is so profound to be brought in to the family of the God who made heaven and earth. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, we were cast out from that family, but God, it says, brings us back. He brings us into his family. Now, one of the questions that kind of arose last week in some people's minds is they asked, like, it says here so very clearly that he chose us and he predestined us to be a part of his family, that he chose us before the world was even made. 
But Dave, what about all those passages that talk about believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? If, if God chooses us to be a part of his family, then what do we do where we're called to hear the gospel and respond? We're supposed to believe if he just chooses us. Does that mean that, that we have anything to do with it? Well, here's where the Bible says that two things can be true at the same time if you rightly understand them. What this text tells us so very clearly is that God chooses you to be a part of his family. Those who are adopted do not get to pick their family. Are we all clear on that? Like, Paul could have used a million other straight illustrations, and he specifically chose, inspired by God, to use adoption. Adopted people are just that. They are chosen to be a part of the family that they become a part of. My youngest daughter, Cece, didn't pick the Wajnikis. We chose her, and we brought her into our family. So truth number one is that God chooses us, but there are these passages where we are called to hear and to believe. And and there's this one passage in particular where where we hear God kind of bringing these two things together. It's in John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles open, you could turn there. In John 1, verses 12 through 13, it says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, there you go, believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Oh, so there it is. If we believe in his name, then we receive the right to become children of God. But look at what John goes on to say. Who were born, that is literally born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of who? God. So here are these two truths being held at the same time. The truth that ultimately we are called to believe in, and then we become a part of God's family. But at the same time, how does one come to believe? Well, John makes it very clear. It's not from ourselves. That ability to believe is not a man-made thing. He literally says we are born again by the will of God. Going back to what Paul says here. So the scriptures hold these two truths. And the reason why it's hard for us to comprehend how these two things work together, that God is sovereign in his choice of adopting us into his family, and yet we're supposed to respond to the gospel and believe, is because the last time I checked, we are finite, and God is what? Infinite. And and so one of the ways that it shows us that we still have a lot to learn and we can never measure up to God is our inability to ultimately comprehend these things in perfection But guess what, church? Our God understands it perfectly. And Jesus actually illustrated it. Do you remember James and John, Peter and Andrew, these fishermen who Jesus calls to and he says to them, he says, come follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. He calls upon them. He gives them the choice. Come and follow me. The invitation is given. And they come and they follow Jesus. And then later on in his ministry, he's talking to his disciples, and he says this in John chapter 6. Or I'm sorry, in John chapter 15. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus even comes and says, I know that I called you to come and follow me, and And from your perspective, you responded, but make no mistake, ultimately, I chose you and appointed you to to these things. And when it's all said and done, 
Even when we might struggle with putting all of these things together or might feel a little disconcerted in our hearts and minds, Paul says, listen, if, if you struggle with these truths, he says, don't. Because at the end of the day, I have told you these things so that you would give praise to God. The focus, Paul says, of what I'm telling you is this. Just celebrate, church, and rest in that if you have believed in Jesus, it means that God chose you to be his. He did not have to, but he did. And what a beautiful thing Paul is saying that you could be part of his family. So praise him. Celebrate him. Acknowledge him as worthy of praise because he has done what only he could do. He brought you into his family. What a precious, precious truth. But then from talking about the work of the son, now we come to our text this morning, picking it up in verse 7. Look at what Paul does here. He moves on from the work of the father to something else. In verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What was that plan? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The first spiritual blessing that Paul talked about was the work of God the Father choosing us, but now he comes and he shows us the second spiritual blessing that we receive. And that second spiritual blessing, I want to state it, and the rest of the message we're going to flesh it out is this. God the Son has set you free from sin's power and made you God's possession. Not only has the Father chosen you and made you a part of his family, but through God the Son... You have been set free from sin's power, and now you've been made God's possession. Look at how verse 7 starts. It says, in him we have redemption. What's taking place here is that in him that's being referred to is Jesus Christ. Paul does something really interesting in this passage. The subject of this passage moves away from the Father to now work us, to focus on the work of Jesus Christ the Son. The in him of verse 7 refers back to Jesus who is mentioned back there in verse 6. And Paul saying, now I'm going to show you what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for you. What's so amazing about this passage is that Paul, when he's all said and done, is he's going to show you the spiritual blessings that have come to us through God the Father, the spiritual blessing that's come to us through God the Son, and the spiritual blessing that's come to us through God the Holy Spirit. And why? Because they've all had that work, are worthy to be praised. In fact, if you want to go deeper into understanding the mystery of the Trinity, the three in one, this is a shameless plug because Pastor Jason, next Sunday in our adult Sunday school class at this hour, so don't everybody leave, but next hour at the 1045 hour, he's going to talk for five weeks. He's going to do our adult Sunday school class on the work of the Trinity. So I'd encourage you to be a part of that. But back to the text. We look here very clearly at the Apostle Paul coming and saying, look at what Christ has done. It says, in him we have, look at that word, redemption through his blood. If you're going to understand the spiritual blessing that's to bring praise from your heart out of your lips to God's ears, you have to understand this word, redemption. The the, the whole section here, these verses all hinge upon us rightly understanding redemption. But sadly... Today, in our modern context, the word redemption isn't really understood as it would have been in Paul's day. Like when you talk about redemption and the idea of redeeming something, 
Today we use redemption in reference to turning something in for a good or a service, you know, taking a coupon and turning it in to redeem something. It meant so much more to Paul and to the first listeners of this letter. And it meant so much more to them because what was evident in their society that wasn't, well, just isn't in our society today, is slavery. And it's not slavery in the 17th and 18th century American form of slavery where you were um, property, you were treated like an animal. You know, in Paul's day, because of the socioeconomic situation, there were a lot of people, hundreds, thousands, even hundreds of thousands, even some have estimated in the millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. How could you have that many slaves? Well, because slavery in Paul's day, slavery in the city of Ephesus, looked more like indentured servitude than anything else. You know what I mean when I say indentured servitude? What that meant was that in Paul's day, people would often fall into debt with someone else. Um, you would try and get a good or a service from somebody and you weren't able to repay it, or you borrowed money from somebody and you couldn't repay it. And so in Paul's day, what you would do is you would offer yourself up to be then a slave of that individual. And you would have to work for them until that debt was paid off. And until the debt was paid off, you were under that master, whoever that master was. And this was rampant in Paul's day. In the city of Ephesus, as we're going to even see in this letter, there were members of the church who were slaves to other members in the church. It was part of the culture of that day. And here's where redemption was so important because they understood this, that redemption for them meant that if someone came and paid the debt you owed, you could be set free. And so what was redemption? What is redemption according to Paul? It's being set free from slavery because your debt has been paid. Until that happened, you were not free. You did not have your own life. And people understood this. So when Paul says, in Christ, you have redemption, they get this idea of a slave having their debt paid, and so all of a sudden, they're free. They now have their life back. They now have the ability to go and to do the things that they would have had to ask their master permission to do. And this idea of redemption being a, a slave set free because a debt has been paid or, or canceled is, is seen at the latter part of verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Look at what he says. The forgiveness of our trespasses. The Greek word here for forgiveness is a face sin. It meant the permanent cancellation of a debt or the release from punishment. Paul's like, if you don't know what I'm talking about, when I talk about redemption, I'm talking about your debt being paid by another. I'm talking about your transgression being canceled, the punishment you deserve being eliminated. This is what Christ the Son has done for you. To say that we have redemption in Jesus Christ is to say that we were in bondage, we were slaves, but because of what someone else has done, the debt has been paid. And who has paid that debt? Who has purchased our freedom? So we are slaves no longer. It's none other than Jesus Christ. Do you know, Paul says, that there wasn't one free person on the face of the earth. But Jesus Christ comes, and if you are in him, 
he sets you free. For us to really understand the magnitude of this redemption, you have to understand the nature of our slavery. Consider with me for a minute the nature of our slavery. You know, Jesus talked about the nature of our slavery. When he was speaking to a group of people in John chapter 8, this is really a fascinating section. In John chapter 8, verse 34, some people come to Jesus, some of his followers, and, and, and Jesus is talking to them about how they're, how they're enslaved. And they say, well, we're not enslaved. We're, we're, we're free. What do you mean that we're enslaved? And Jesus says in John 8, 34 to this group of people, listen to this. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There in John chapter 8, verse 34, what does Jesus say? Church, what are we enslaved to, according to Jesus? Sin. If you have sinned, that means you, if you have transgressed God's law, if you've disobeyed even at one point, you are a slave to sin. You are in bondage. Not only are you in bondage, but you're under God's judgment. Look at this verse. This is Titus 3.3. 3. Look at the extent of our slavery here, the nature of it. For we ourselves, he says, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul says that's described every single person who's enslaved to sin. In Galatians, we read this, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. But now you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want, whose slaves you want to be once more? He says, don't you see that before Christ redeems you, every single person has a master over them? The sinful nature, we are enslaved to it. He's going to write in chapter 2. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we're going to hit it again. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you all once walked following the course of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. I don't care who you are, I don't care what you think, the scriptures say that every person apart from Jesus Christ is a slave to sin. So what is the nature of our slavery? Complete bondage to the sinful nature and under God's judgment. Paul says we were like the rest under God's wrath. This is a slavery that comes upon us and not only binds us so that we, you see, the master, mastery of sin over us, it brings about death and it brings about corruption, but it also brings us under God's judgment that we rightly deserve. It, this, is a, this is a horrid state to be in. Yet what does the text say? In Christ, you have been what? Redeemed. This is no longer who you are. I want to show you a picture of how I think most people picture themselves in the world. I think most people go around in life and, and that most even secular people think we're just totally free. We're, it's, it's all good. Religion doesn't matter. Christianity doesn't matter. I am free to go and to be and to do and to, if I can dream it, I can be it. 
Yet the scriptures paint a very different picture of humanity. It's this picture. We are in bondage. We are slaves. We are in a prison. We are not free. The, the, the twisted perspective that humanity has was illustrated to me about two guys that came to visit one another. And, and one guy came to visit his friend in this one location. And his friend was in a very special location. When he went to visit his friend, the guy shows up and he, and he looks at his friend and he says to him, he says, man, my life is so difficult. He says, every day I got to go to work. You know, I wake up, I'm working for the man. I just feel like I don't have any free time. It's just work, work, work all, all day long. I'm exhausted at the end of the day. Even the weekend, it's, it's no fun, you know, because I got to fix things around my house and do all these things. And so and he's looking at his buddy who's sitting across the table from him. And he says, you know, I work and I do all these things all day long. And then, you know, the weekend I got to fix things. But he says, you, you have the life. And his friend's like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, you have the life. I mean, you wake up. You can go and work out. You have your meals brought to you every single day. You get to go to the library. I mean, your life is just a piece of cake in comparison to mine. And he looks at his friend and he says, my life is a piece of cake in comparison to yours. He says, yeah, it is. He's like, you idiot. You're visiting me in prison. <laughs> and it was just a matter of perspective. You see, most people go through their life and they think, I'm so free. In reality, it's like, don't you get it? Don't you see? We are corrupted by the sinful nature and we can't free ourselves. We're in bondage. We're in a horrible condition. And yet Paul says, but no, you're not. Not any longer. If you're in Jesus Christ, you're no longer under God's judgment. He has redeemed you. He's purchased you. And so now your debt has been paid. Sin no longer has mastery over you. So you don't have to give in to those things. You are free from its power. Praise the Lord. Those people who were celebrating Tennessee's win over Alabama, a football team kicked a ball, threw a goal, and won a game. We wake up every single day in Jesus Christ and we no longer have to fear the judgment of God and we no longer have to give in to the sinful nature because Jesus Christ has set us free. And then it gets better because he goes on to say, look at this. Do you know the cost of your redemption? Do you know why he is so worthy of praise? Look at the cost of your redemption. Look at the price that was paid so that you could have these joys of being free and no longer in prison. He says, look at this, in him we have redemption through his what? Blood. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Jesus stood in our place because here's the deal, church. Why did Christ have to die? Because we owed God perfect obedience. We also, because of our lack of perfect obedience, deserve to die. And so somebody had to live in perfect obedience to the Father, and somebody then had to give themselves up as a spotless sacrifice for us for this debt to be paid. And only one person could do it, God the Son. And that's what he did. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 13. Paul comes and he says it. He says, listen, this is what it looked like. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in 
ordinances. Jesus Christ came and died. He purchased our redemption with his blood. He writes to the church in Colossae. He says this in chapter 1. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Paul, well, I think he's upped a little bit by Peter when Peter says, listen, it wasn't a material thing that Jesus did. In 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, look what he says. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. All of these verses that I'm showing you and so many more, they speak to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ standing in our place. So you want to know the cost of your redemption? Somebody didn't pay off your car loan. Somebody didn't even pay off your house, although that would cause me to want to praise somebody. The cost of our redemption was the sacrifice of the perfect Son of God. The perfect Son of God said, I've given my life for you. My blood, my sacrifice, my suffering, so that you can be set free. Just sit in that church for a minute. Just sit in that. Think about sacrifices people have made for you to maybe have experiences, to have opportunities. Maybe somebody bought you dinner one time. They spent the money to do that, to send you on a trip. You're like, that was so wonderful. That was so kind of them. How, how gracious of them. Nobody's ever died for you. To give you eternal life. To reconcile you to the Father, except one, and his name is Jesus. And so what he does in his redemption, Hebrews 4 tells us, it's an eternal redemption. It's something that will never pass away. I got to give credit for this next illustration to my brother. He's actually here today because he's going to hear me say it. So I got to, you know, I got to give him credit, right? He preaches and sometimes I steal his stuff. No, just kidding. Yeah, I do all the time. But no, he was preaching through this passage and he said, have you heard about this, Dave? Did you know in China... In China, they discovered that people can actually hire someone to fulfill their prison sentences for them. Only in China, huh? Uh, what, what a country, huh? And so we have these examples of one man in particular who hit another person while he was drag racing. And he was sentenced to three years in prison for hitting and killing somebody. That doesn't feel equitable, but okay, let's go with it. So, and so he hired somebody to stand in court for him and receive his sentence. And so this guy went to prison for another man for three years because the guy who committed the crime paid him to do it. Uh, a company was also accused in court of ultimately uh, harming individuals in a neighborhood. And they paid a guy $31 today to go to prison to pay for the penalty that this company had committed. Like, we get the idea. We like the idea of substitution. No doubt that rich young man who paid for the guy to go to prison for him for three years liked the idea of paying for somebody else to deal with his crime. But do you see the difference between those two things? You see, you and I couldn't pay Jesus Christ. We couldn't do something in order to get Jesus to do for us what he has done for us. The difference here in this illustration is this. Look at what Paul goes on to say. Why does Jesus come and offer, offer himself as a means of our redemption, he says it right here at the end of verse 7, according to the riches of his what? Grace. 
the undeserved gift which he lavished upon us. Grace is receiving what we do not deserve. And so our redemption, church, it was an act holy of grace. You didn't merit it. You did not earn it. You did not deserve it. This is the kind of God we have that the son comes and he says, I see you. I know everything that you did. I know that you are as guilty as the day is long. But I'm going to substitute my life for yours. I'm going to stand in your place. I'm not going to kick a field goal and win a game. I'm not going to do a great performance that should cause you to praise me. I'm going to die for you and release you from the penalty of sin and the weight of it forever and ever. Amen. It's an act of grace. And look at how Paul says, he has lavished it upon us. I wish I would have said this the first hour, what I'm about to say. Sometimes life can deal you, it feels like a really crummy hand. Even in the midst of our church, there is a significant financial disparity from the different people that exist. And you could look at yourself and you could look at the hardships and the difficulties that you have. You could say that financially you're not as secure as somebody else. And, and we can at times feel like, man, I'm, I'm just destitute here. I don't have anything. My life is just hardship and pain. And I'm not gonna deny the hardship and pain that you feel, but would you know and hear the truth here today? If you are in Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed and set free. You have been brought into the home of God the Father, and you will know an eternity where all that you will know and experience are his grace and his riches lavished upon you because you will be in his presence and you will know the forgiveness of your sins. And I'm here to tell you today, there is not one person who leaves here on Sunday morning and walks into the week, whatever it holds, that is not a recipient of on grace beyond measure and grace beyond anything that this world will ever be able to offer you. And so when you consider the suffering and the difficulties of this present age, Paul says it's but a slight and momentary affliction in comparison to the weight of glory we're going to receive. Praise God for that. Amen. May we look to that. May we see that. And then what blows my mind, and we're going to get into this in more detail next week, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time there, is this. Our redemption it wasn't just an act of grace. It was all part of God's plan. The fact that he would redeem you, just as it was in his choosing you to be a part of his family. Do you see how Paul says it one more time? This wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't as though God all of a sudden sent his son to do the act of redeeming us in response to something that we had done, he says, no, this was always part of his plan. And it was always part of his plan because he wanted to show us his glory and his power so that we might do what the whole passage starts with, and that is praising him. Look at how he fleshes this out, starting in verse 8. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Church, there's a beauty here. 
For the longest time, God's plan wasn't fully known. What was he doing with his creation, with our fall and with our sin? We see his work in Israel, but it was all leading to this. Church, we are recipients today of his grace and of his redemption. And he had planned that from the beginning, as he said earlier, from the foundation of the world. And so, in him, verse 11 says, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Again, here it is, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The work that he's doing in you and me, the redemption that he sets forth in Jesus Christ, his choosing us to be a part of his family, all of this, all of this is to overwhelm us with a desire to praise him because we stand back and we say, we deserve none of this and yet this is what God, you do. This is what you do. You change us, you transform us. And if you notice what Paul says here is that he unites in Christ all things. So this is what sometimes people get a little confused with. You know that we're set free from slavery to sin's power over us. But you also know that when he redeems us, he brings us underneath the rule and reign of Christ. <laughs> now that's not a bad thing, to be underneath the reign and rule of Christ. As Paul will say, to be slaves to righteousness, because that's who you were made to be. This thing over here, slaves to sin, that's not who you were ever intended to be. That's not the way, that's not the truth, and that's not the life, it's over here. And what Paul says here is that we have been united in Christ. We've been brought under the reign and rule of Christ. And so when you and I know this, two things should happen. The first is your heart and my heart should be overwhelmed to say praise. I'm not a prisoner anymore. I, I'm, I'm free. I got my life back. The life that I was made for. But the second thing that you should ask yourself is now that I have been set free from sin, what's my response to it? Now am I just... Free to do whatever I, I want to do? No, you're now brought under the reign and rule of Christ. And so look at this. I want to close with just these two verses. The first is in Romans chapter 6. Paul says, now church, what are we to do with our freedom? He comes to us and he says this. But now, verse 22 of chapter 6. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get... The fruit you get now leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You come now with your freedom, and you say, how can I live to the glory of God? How can I manifest who I am to be in him? How can I be and live as the blameless son and daughter that he has now made me to be because sin no longer has power over me? Just to be clear, it doesn't mean that at times we still won't battle against the flesh, but it's a victory that has, can be won and has been won through Jesus. And so Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian church, would say this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? We're going to see this next week. Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the beauty. You have the ability and you have been enabled to ultimately live for the glory of God, to make much of him with your life. If I can just speak to 
dads here for a minute, I wonder, dads, what does it look like for us to embrace the truth that we've been set free from sin? That sin no longer has power over us, that the flesh isn't who we are, but we have the spirit of God and we have been redeemed. Like it's a fair question to ask because the text leads us there. Do you know men today, husbands and fathers, if you're a single guy, you're off the hook. No, I'm just kidding. If, if you've been set free, men, like what does that mean for us? What that means for us is what Paul says, we no longer have to live for ourselves, but we live for him. It means for us that as fathers and husbands, we no longer have to force our way through anger. We no longer have to force our way through harshness to get what we want. But when our family and when our wives and when whoever doesn't respond to us in the way that we think we earn or deserve, our response, because we've been freed from sin, is we do not have to lash out in anger. We don't have to be harsh. We don't have to be demanding. Instead, we can be men who manifest to the world the fruit of the Spirit because we've been set free from the flesh. And so love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are what mark us as men in our families. To wake up in the morning and to say, oh, what a... Remember that picture I showed of the guy, you know, that is us now in Christ. I can wake up in the morning and say, I'm, I'm free from whatever comes this way. I am free to respond in the spirit and not in the flesh. I don't need from my children or from my wife, and children and wives, don't use this as an excuse against your husbands. Don't create trials for them unnecessarily. But I don't, I'm free from from pursuing those things in the flesh, I'm free to show them Christ in me. Because I'm an equal opportunity pastor for the wives and mothers here today, the same holds true. So often we believe or can feel that we need our children to behave and to act a certain way. We need to be treated and acknowledged in a certain way as, as mothers and wives in order for us to, to feel and to believe our significance and our importance versus finding our value ultimately in the truth and responding in the truth that you have been set free from yourself. Just as a man has been set free from self-centeredness and self-focus that demands and seeks to control, so too, Wives, in the same way, we can look at ourselves and say, my identity is based upon the freedom that Christ has set me free in order to live to the praise and to the glory of his name. And so I can live out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control because Christ is my master and sin is not. Now, is that an easy thing to do each and every morning and every day? (laughs) It's not. I see some heads that are in agreement because it was going to require us to do something. And that is to do what Paul asks us to do when he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our eyes must be fixed on him. We must look to him. If we're to live out the redemption that has been purchased through the cross of Jesus Christ, it begins with knowing that you have been bought with a price and then knowing that we therefore can glorify him. May the Lord help us in that because He has purchased that freedom for us. Let's pray together.
Lord, sometimes the truth of your word is just so simple. To be called slaves no longer, but to be called the redeemed. To be no longer enslaved to sin, but to be slaves to righteousness, set free from those things that are destructive and harmful to us and being given the way, the truth, and the life through Jesus Christ. Lord, these, these things in one sense are so simple, but living them out, Lord, we know is only possible as we would look to you, as we would cling to you, as we would bring to our minds these truths over and over again. So for my heart and for the heart of my dear brothers and sisters here, Lord, would you help us to see ourselves as captives who have been set free? And that we would no longer, Lord, give in to the desires of the flesh because, Lord, that's not who we are. But instead, Lord, would learn to live day by day that we can be imitators of God, as you will tell us in your word, because we are beloved children. Your love has transformed us. Christ's work has set us free. And so, Lord, help us to live in that. And if there's anyone here today, Lord, that does not know has not yet experienced that freedom from the power of sin because, Lord, they have not come to respond to the gospel's call to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray today that they wouldn't play around with it anymore, that they wouldn't be trying to, Lord, put a, a salve on a mortal wound, but, Lord, would indeed recognize that their soul can only be healed through the precious blood of Jesus Christ and that they would call on him for the forgiveness of their sins, that they would repent and turn to the one who saves. And so it is in Christ's name that we pray and we ask this. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.